Reader's Digest presents Hollywood 360 with your host, Carl Amari. Who's that strange-looking man, Fungie? That's Carl. I met him at the laundry man. Sam Spade Detective Agency. Sam, sweetheart. I don't know what to do, Rabbi. Every night he listens to the radio. I can't keep him away. The Lone Ranger, uh, the Shadow, the Masked Avenger. Uh, this is not good. It tends to induce bad values, false dreams, lazy habits. Want to hear the most annoying sound in the world? Hello, everyone. I'm Carl Amari, and this is Hollywood 360, the radio show that presents all things entertainment, including showbiz news, classic radio shows, movie reviews, trivia contests, and celebrity interviews. This hour on Hollywood 360, I'll present a classic radio mystery on The Whistler. But it's time now for our quiz game, Stump the Host. Lisa Wolf will test my knowledge of classic radio by asking me a bevy of questions on the subject. And for every question I answer correctly, you'll hear that. For every question I answer incorrectly, you'll hear that. Lisa receives a point when that happens. Yuck. One listener will help me answer questions and win prizes. Lisa, say hello to our Hollywood 360 listener. All righty. We've got Cheryl on the line from Orlando. Hey, Cheryl. Are you with us? There you are. Hi, Cheryl. Hi, how you doing? Good, how are you? You ready to I, win some prizes? I was. Yes, I, I am. How's Orlando doing? Um. Well, actually, we're trying to get a little cooler here. We're down to about 85. Oh, wow. Oh, wow, <laughs> 85. That sounds nice. It's hard to imagine. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's do this. Do you know your old-time radio stuff, Cheryl? Uh a little Something. bit? A little bit? Okay, yeah, great. A little bit. Well, you take a shot in answering, and then I'll be your lifeline. Okay. I, I th- okay, I think these should be nice, and, you know, on the on the more comfortable side. I try right. not to do anything too crazy here. Okay, Cheryl, what is the introduction from The Shadow? Do you, are you able to uh, speak any of the words from that? Uh, let's see. How about... Um... Who knows what evil lurks right. in the minds and hearts of men. Oh, she's That's good. very, very good. Way to go. You got it. She is on the board. And it is spoken by what actor? There's a lot oh. of them. Oh. Well, who was the famous one that spoke? Isn't well, there, there was one a lot of actors one? that play it well. Yeah. Let's see. Take a guess, Cheryl. I've got one is written as the most famous one of this opener. Yeah. Any idea? I can't remember. You're probably talking about Orson Welles, right? Well, because uh, Orson Welles played the shadow. He was the most famous person, yeah. but there was lots of yeah. actors. Okay. Bill Johnstone, Brett Morrison, John Archer, they're all Steve Courtley. There's all a lot good. of people. All good. All and right. They're good. They're all good. And Cheryl, do you know the closing of the shadow as Ooh. well? Wow, that's tougher. I know. Mm, no. All right. Well, that was I the weed know. of crime right. bears bitter fruit. Crime does, does not, not pay. pay, the shadow knows. There you go. All right, so we got another ding-ding there. There you go, a little teamwork. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Who was the Texas Plainsman who wandered through the Western territories, leaving behind a trail of still-remembered legends? And that's a quote. Oh, yeah, I know who this is. Do you know who this is, Cheryl? Uh, let's see. Wasn't the Cisco kid? No, that's a great guess. It makes sense. 
but not. No, this was Britt Ponsett, played by James Stewart on The Six Shooter. That is right. Right? He's got it. See, I'm your lifeline. You're okay, Cheryl. Don't worry. <laughs> you work together. Gotcha. You- <laughs> I got your back. He's a net. Thank you. <laughs> and who created The Six the six Shooter? The Six Shooter. Oh, um, gosh. I think I know this. If I get this. If you get this. I think it was something like. Do you know it, Cheryl? No, no. I think it was something like Bert. His last name was Bert. His like, last name like, is Bert. Uh, that is true. Something Fre- Fred Bert? Frank. Frank. It's okay. Frank. You've got it. All right. That, that counts. Mr. Bert. You have FR, so I feel like that's oh, good wow. enough that's, for me. This, my brain has some really weird crevices in it. You know, I'd like to make it very clear in case anybody isn't sure. I would never go over these questions with Carl ahead of time. It makes me feel good when he doesn't know the answer. So. <laughs> we want you to feel good, Lisa. That's right. It's all about me feeling good yeah. here. All right. A trademark of the show was James Stewart's way of handling the narration during the tense scenes. Mm. What did he do that was unique to him? I'm... You do know. Do you have I mean, any I idea? Any this idea, Cheryl? Over and over. And, and how, what Jimmy Stewart, James Stewart well, did. Well, I talk like this. I mean, anyway. It would do that yeah. a lot. They sure. said whenever the scenes got tense, he yeah. always did what? And that was his trademark. Did he do that? Well, Like stutter? Yes, but that's um, not what I'm referring to. He talked to the audience. He would like, he would like, you know, he would like break the third plane, wall, you know, like wall. the wall and talk to the audience. That might be, it, maybe this is a tough question. All right, but what? I'm tell I don't you know. What, he would whisper. Oh, really? No, I don't yeah. know. Yeah. All right. All right. So we missed now one. We know. That's okay. Don't worry. No pressure, <laughs> no Cheryl. Problem, we we all we guys. missed one. That's all. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> what show allowed the listeners to travel into the future with Buzz Corey, Commander in Chief? Ah, uh, you know that one, Cheryl. Flash Gordon. Mm, good guess. Now that was the Space Patrol. The Space Patrol. Oh. Space Patrol. We have, we have five, so You're we're good doing to go. we're doing good. And what was Cadet Happy's famous catchphrase? Oh, wow. I think I know this. <laughs> you won't say that. I I think I know this. I may you uh, have to say. Do you it know feeling. what it is? His his famous like catchphrase. Ah, uh, like it was something like. Space rockets. It was like jumping space rockets or something like you that. You are so close. It's like jumping space rockets. <laughs> something close. Yeah, I give something. you half credit for that. What was it? It's smoking rockets. Oh, uh, come on. I Only you half? half? You got rockets. I don't have a sound effect for half. That's all right. Ding it really fast. <laughs> no. <laughs> there. All right. Well, we each get a half. You get a half for all, all right. good. I was close, though. I know. All no, right. This, I know this isn't so easy. All right. All right. Go ahead. On the Stan Freeberg show, yeah. Stan Freeberg developed a parody of Lawrence Welk, which he later yeah. released as a single right. titled. Oh, boy. Ooh. You know this one, Cheryl? Mm-mm. Yeah. Uh, uh, let's see. Uh, oh, gosh. Oh, gosh. <laughs> I, I can hear him. I can hear him doing it. What letter did you just say? Because it sounded right. Uh, wonderful, wonderful. Yes, that's it. Right there. That's Is that it. it? Yes, wonderful, wonderful. Yeah, oh, With wow. And like wonderful, wonderful. Wonderful, wonderful. Yes. That works. Wow. One time, Stan Freeberg and I... Um, 
I, he passed away last year. I know. He's just such a great guy. We, we're out of time, but I'm going to give tell a really quick uh, story. Okay. One time, Cheryl, when I, it was actually like the first time I met Stan. We worked together. Stan hosted a show that I produced. And the very first time I met him in L.A., we had to go somewhere, and we were late, and he had a Jaguar, like a, a sedan Jaguar. And we got in his car, and he was driving. And he literally, and I'm not kidding, he was speeding, and then he went up. There was traffic. He went on the sidewalk. And went around the traffic? Drove on the sidewalk. And I was like, are you kidding me? Did you say anything? Yeah. I was like, my life flashed before me. There was people. I'm not even kidding you. This is a true story. He drove on the sidewalk in L.A. And I, that's, I, that was the last time I ever drove in the car with Stan. Oh, boy. Yeah. Sounds like something from Rush Hour. Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. Well, anyway, Cheryl, we did good. We did really, did really great. good. One, two, three, four, five, six and a half. And Lisa five, got a poultry 1.5. All right. I'll so, take it. Yeah. So our theme music for this is you can hit the theme music. All right. It is. So that's it. We did it. We did great. We did you it. Did. You You're going to win some job. prizes, Cheryl. Thanks for calling right. in. Thank you, Cheryl. All right, when we come back, it's Thank the Whistler. You. Stick around. Alrighty. And now back to Hollywood 360 with Carl Amari, brought to you by Reader's Digest. The Whistler came to radio in 1942. He was an all-knowing character who narrated a person's criminal acts for the benefit of the listener. The criminal's fate would be ultimately undone, either by an overlooked but important detail or by their own negligence. Ironic twist endings were a key feature of each episode, though Whistler often commented directly upon the action and often taunted the criminal from an omniscient perspective. Gail Gordon, Joseph Kearns, Marvin Miller, Bill Johnstone, and Everett Clark each played the Whistler over the run, but Bill Foreman had the role the longest. Sponsored by Signal Oil, The Whistler was adapted into a series of films by Columbia Pictures, and the radio series lasted until 1955. All right, it's time now for The Whistler. This is from April 28, 1947, called The Black Book, and it stars Bill Foreman as The Whistler. In the cast, Jeanette Nolan and David Ellis. This is sponsored by Signal Oil, part one now of The Whistler. The Signal Oil program... The Whistler. That whistle is your signal for the signal oil program, The Whistler. I am The Whistler, and I know many things, for I walk by night. I know many strange tales. Hidden in the hearts of men and women who have stepped into the shadows. Yes, I know the nameless terrors of which they dare not speak. Yes, friends, it's time for the Signal Oil program, The Whistler. Rated by Independent Research, the most popular West Coast program in radio history. And now, The Whistler's strange story. The Black Book. Paul had looked forward to the opening night in Philadelphia for months. And if anything, it had exceeded his brightest hopes. In a way, it was a reward for the four long years of struggle since he'd come to Cecil Wenham's Ballet Arts Company as an unknown dancer from London. Yes, Philadelphia was a wonderful opening with five curtain calls for him alone after Spectre of the Rose. 
He knew he had America in the palm of his hand now, that the morning papers would hail him as a star, that he was no longer a promising newcomer, but a great dancer. So it was ironic on that night in Philadelphia, with the applause still ringing in his ears, that Cecil Wenham should come into Paul's room and shatter his dream into a thousand bits. Paul. Hello, Cecil. Paul, I've done it. I've signed her up. You'd better tell me tomorrow. I'm dining with some friends. A three-year contract, exclusive, with options on two more. Look, Cecil. I want you to meet her, Paul. She's up in my office now. All right. Who is it, Cecil? Of course, I couldn't tell you her name until now, but... Paul, we've got the greatest choreographer and ballet mistress in the business. I had a hard time persuading her to leave London. Wait a minute. London? Oh, she's been topped over there for years. Who is it, Cecil? Tell me. Catherine Valadon. Catherine Valadon. You, you hired Valadon. You, you know her? But she doesn't dance. Well, I'm buying her head, not her feet. She'll direct the company for us. She's, she's out there now? Yes. Come on, I, I said want... I was late, Cecil. Oh, come on. Did you hear me? I'm late. I don't want to talk to anybody. Now, please, leave me alone. Yes, it's ironic, isn't it, Paul? This night of triumph, the great performance, the resounding applause suddenly becomes meaningless. And there's a heavy feeling of defeat inside you as you sink into the sofa in your dressing room, alone now. You sit there thinking, half hearing the music of the finale, and in your mind it seems to change slowly and strangely into another melody on a rehearsal piano four years ago in a London theater. A couple moves downstage center. The young man steps to one side as the woman comes to a point in front of him. The man is you, Paul, and the woman, Catherine Valadon. I'd like to get it right just this once. What's the matter now? You are supposed to lift me at that passage. I know it. Then why did you stand there like an oaf? You are at least two beats behind me. I was following the music. That's more than I can say for you. You! Oh, wait a moment now. Quarling won't get us anywhere. What's the trouble, Captain? I am waiting for Paul to decide to become a dancer. Perhaps you can convince him, Mr. Brady. I am ready to give up. I'll be in my dressing room if you need me. What's the idea, Paul? She's always waiting for me to slip so she can pounce out. You had no right to talk to her like that. The timing was off and you know it. No wonder it's off. I told you I can't dance with her. She's a, she's a machine, not a woman. Listen to me, Paul. I'm not going to let that phony artistic temperament of yours upset this company. You're going to her dressing room right now and apologize to her. I'll do nothing of the kind. You'll do it or leave the company. Look, Brady, that's pretty unreasonable of you. I'm dealing with an unreasonable man. Going to do as I say? Very well, Brady. Well, Paul? I've come to tell you that I'm sorry. How sweet of you. You can write that in your little black book, too. At exactly 3.15 and a half, on the afternoon of October 18th, Paul Cartmel came into your dressing room and apologized humbly. Did you come here to insult me again? You could be a charming woman if you weren't such a machine. Everything so... so prompt, precise, exact. It's my profession. It's your life. You're not human, Catherine. Suppose you forget about me and concentrate on your own shortcomings. All right. All right, I'm sorry. Is he going on with the rehearsal? 
course. All right. Let's try it again. And this time, keep your mind on your work. Yes, it's coming back to you, isn't it, Paul? How you walked back on the stage with her, humiliated, raging inside, trying to ignore the embarrassed faces of the rest of the cast. The pianist picked up your cue, and the two of you moved together. She was poised before you on the point. And as you moved in to lift her, a single idea took hold of you. Yes, there's a traditional hazard in the ballet, Paul. A dancer, dropped hard on a pointed toe, will never dance again. He'll lift her above you, higher and higher. Then in a blind rage, you relax your hold. Is she, Doctor? I can't say yet. We're waiting for the x-rays. Is it... Uh, is it all right for me to go in? Oh, of course. Her friends are in there with her. Thank you. You're being a wonderful sport about it all, Kathy. <laughs> Why not? You don't think a little thing like a bruised toe... Oh. Hello, Catherine. Paul, what a lovely bouquet. I, uh, I hope you like them. I love them, darling. It's so thoughtful of you. Uh, Catherine, I... Uh, I want to tell you how awful I feel. I... I don't know what happened. Oh, I... not another word now. Oh, it was an accident, Paul. Of course it was. Happens in the best of companies. And they've all told me I'll be as good as ever in a week or so. Now, uh, run along, you two. I want to talk to Paul. <laughs> sure enough. Keep it up, old girl. Goodbye, Kathy. Goodbye. See you tomorrow at one. Uh, 1.30, dear. Visiting hours, you know. Oh, good. Put me in the black book, darling. I'm so glad you're taking it this way, Catherine. I felt like such a heel... That's just it. You are a heel. What do you mean? Do you think I'm stupid, Paul? Do you think I'm blind? Accident. Everyone's talking about my unfortunate accident. Now, just a minute. You did not slip, Paul. I felt you let me go deliberately. And don't think I've swallowed that sugar-coated nonsense about coming out of it as good as ever. I'm through as a dancer. And I know it. Do you know what it's like to be through, Paul? Do you know how it feels to lie in a hospital bed with everything behind you? And nothing ahead? Well, you're going to know, Paul. I'm going to show you. If it takes the rest of my life! And that's what brought you to America, Paul. You never admitted it, even to yourself. Told yourself it was the war. Gave yourself a thousand other reasons. But at the bottom of it was fear of a little black-eyed ballerina you knew would kill you if everything else failed her. Yes, Paul. Catherine Valadon has caught up with you at last. In spite of the new name, Paul Cooper. The new country, the new career. And as you lean back on the sofa in your dressing room, you know that here in Philadelphia, in a single evening, you've won... And you've lost. Paul? Yes, Cecil? Oh, Mademoiselle Valadon, may I present our star, Paul Cooper? Don't get up. I didn't intend to. Why, well, Paul? Don't let it bother you, Mr. Venom. Paul and I are old friends. We've been through a lot together in London. Hadn't we, Paul? In those days, it was Paul Cartnell, though. For heaven's sake, Catherine. 
He's always this way when he's tired, Mr. Venom. Well, I'd better run along. You can call the rehearsal tomorrow morning at nine sharp. Please see that no one is late. Well, uh, taking over tomorrow, eh? Yes, Mr. Venom. I'm taking over tomorrow. I don't mean to be critical, but that didn't sound like a uh, real accent, did you're, it? You're being critical. Yeah, I sounded like uh, someone talking like this. That's what I thought. That, you know. It was a little dramatic. It, it didn't seem like a real uh, like, accent. It sounds like Hogan's Heroes. Yeah. I'm picturing like Colonel ja Clint. Right? Ja Vult. <laughs> it's a little over the top. It was. It didn't seem like a real it, it, uh, accent a, on there. Like but, comedy. you know, hey. Who am I to say? Exactly. Right. Right. This is the first portion of The Whistler with the black book with Bill Foreman. I mean, here I am, you know, talking uh, negatively about some actor in this from 65 years ago. That's not very nice. No, it's not. I take it back. Okay. She sounded perfect. That's what I was thinking. It was a very authentic, realistic accent. That's right. Authentic and realistic are about the same thing. Genuine. Hey, there's another one. Thanks. It was a very authentic, genuine, realistic-sounding accent. How's that? Did you say something? I don't remember. Okay. Um, we'll get back to the Whistler in just a few minutes. I'm a little, uh, it's, uh, I'm a little tired. Yeah. I'm tired. Why? Yeah, I don't know. I'm tired. Well, you better wake up. You know, wake me up. <laughs> I'm, you know what it is, Lisa? No. This is true. I didn't have a coffee. I know that. I need a coffee. All right. Well, you could probably solve that problem. That I probably need to get a coffee. I suggested that, and I you said no. I think so. Yeah. Um, but I'm enjoying the Whistler. I always do like the Whistler a lot. Whistler is one of my favorites. There was always a surprise yeah. twist ending at the end. A twist always ending kept, at the end. Yeah, twist ending. There was always a twist ending at the at end. At the end. Keep, kept you uh, kind of listening and paying attention. Until the end. Till the end. All right, here is a, another. You are going to get it. Here is another uh, Hugh Jackman movie, 2001 comedy fantasy romance. I've been warned about you. Oh, really? And what, pray tell, did the great disappointment say? That you were dangerous, though you hardly look it. Really? A lady in trousers isn't dangerous, merely plain. I take it you're a career woman. Yeah, market research. All right. If you know what movie this is, give us a call. Toll free 855-360-H360. Give us a call if you know this movie. I've been warned about you. Oh, really? And what, pray tell, did the great disappointment say? That you were dangerous, though you hardly look it. Really? A lady in trousers isn't dangerous, merely plain. I take it you're a career woman. Yeah, market research. Give us a call. We'll be right back. Now back to the best in classic radio on Hollywood 360. Brought to you by Reader's Digest. All right, Lisa Wolf, let's play this clip. I've been warned about you. Oh, really? And what, pray tell, did the great disappointment say? That you were dangerous, though you hardly look it. Really? A lady in trousers isn't dangerous, merely plain. I take it you're a career woman. Yeah, market research. All right, what movie is that? Let's talk with Jan out in Carpentersville. Hi, Jan. How are you? Hi. I'm fine. How are you? Excellent. Would you like to win some prizes? Sure. All right. <laughs> Just tell us what movie this is and you will. Okay. Kate and Leopold. Yes, you are absolutely right. Did you watch this movie? Did you like it? Yes. Oh, good. Yes. Yeah, this is uh, this is like a romantic comedy, right? So uh, what do you yeah. think? Do you think I ever watched it? Uh, probably not. No, you're absolutely, you win double prizes because you're absolutely right. This is more of a Lisa Wolf kind of movie, right, Lisa? <laughs> That's true. Um, all right, Jan, you're a winner. Thanks for calling in. I appreciate it. 
All right. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, Jan knew it, Lisa Wolf. She knew that this movie that starred Hugh Jackman, Meg Ryan, and Liev Schreiber. Uh, in this movie, Hugh Jackman and Liev Schreiber would later co-star as mortal enemies Wolverine and Sabretooth in X-Men Origins Wolverine from 2009. How do you like that trivia? Yeah, that's... They were both in another movie, huh? Triviality yeah? trivia. I tell you, I'm good with this trivia oh, stuff. Oh, you're good. Yeah, yeah. All right, uh, let's get back now to The Whistler. So it all came to a climax in Philadelphia, Paul, with a ballet performance of Spectre of the Rose that made all the years of struggle worthwhile. And it's strange somehow that on your night of triumph, a woman named Catherine Valadon should walk out of your past and threaten to destroy it all. You're positive there's only one reason why she came to the company as choreographer. The reason she gave you in that London hospital room four years ago. Do you know how it feels to lie in bed with everything behind you and nothing ahead? Well, you're going to know, Paul. I'm going to show you if it takes the rest of my life. By morning, you know there's only one answer. You've got to make Wenham change his mind. I tell you, it won't work, Cecil. Either Valadon goes or I do. What's happening to you, Paul? Catherine's doing such a fine job. Now, I want you to pull yourself together and start dancing. I refuse to go on tour under these conditions. Oh? Must I remind you of your contract? I don't care. Well, you'd better care. If it's violated, you'll never dance again. Never dance again. That's what she said. What? Listen, Wenham. You don't know her. She's not just trying to drive me out of the company. It's more than that. She'll stop at nothing. I don't understand you, Paul. What's... I can't tell you anymore. But you've got to make a choice right now, Cecil. Valadon or me. I want you both for the good of the company. However, if you force me, well, you're big, but you can be replaced. All right. All right, replace me. There are other companies. Oh, you're talking nonsense. Furthermore, your contract is not for sale. I can hold you for two years, even if I put you to work shifting scenery. You don't even have to dance, you know. You better run along now. Valadon's waiting for you at rehearsal. It's no use, Paul. You're back in the old routine. Under Catherine's thumb again. Just like four years ago in London. Only she's worse now, isn't she? Much worse. Because she's doing it all for a purpose. Yes, and she doesn't let up for an instant. Well, our prima donna has finally decided to attend the rehearsal. I'm, uh, I'm sorry I'm late. I, I wasn't sure what time the, the call was. The schedule is on the board. It's a Parisian, 10.30 a.m. sharp. Can I be clearer than that? Is the world going to fall apart if I'm two minutes late? A real artist takes pride in precision. I prefer to save it for the dance. An excellent idea. You'll need it in the new specialty I'm preparing. What are you talking about? I'm working out the choreography now. It's a pas de deux, especially for you, Paul. I want to have it ready by the time we go on tour. You're frantic now, not knowing what's in the back of her mind. And during the days that follow, you wonder about the special dance she's preparing. What she meant when she said it was especially for you. 
It becomes clear the afternoon she introduces you to Eric Ballard, a big, hulking man who'd look more at home in the wrestling ring than on a ballet stage. I meant to tell you more about Eric, Paul. He'll be an excellent supporting partner for you. Partner? Yes, well, in the new ballet I'm creating. Uh, Mr. Benham thinks it's very original. Actually, it's based on something we used to do in London. You and I. Captain, what are you trying you to do? You remember, Paul? The one we were rehearsing the day you slipped? <laughs> I've rearranged it entirely. Eric here takes your place. You take mine. I take your place. It sounds like an exciting number to me, Mr. Cooper. Eric, why don't you go get Mr. Benham? We'll run through it for him. Sure thing, Miss Valadon. Be right back. Captain, what is this? Why did you hire that hulking fool of... Please, Paul. He's sweet to his friends. And devoted, too. I suppose he'd do anything you tell him. Perhaps. But you needn't worry about the dance. He is very strong, Paul. Well, I won't do it, Catherine. If you think I'll fall for this crude attempt at revenge... Revenge? That's the most you've ever admitted. I, well, I, I don't Perhaps mean Perhaps I should recall that little London incident to the trade papers. Let them know that their celebrated Paul Cooper is actually the Paul Cartnell who deliberately dropped the great ballerina and made certain that Catherine Belladon would never dance again. Catherine, that's all forgotten. You wouldn't make it. You will rehearse this number with Eric. Have it ready for the time when we want to add some variety to the program. Whatever you say, Catherine. Good. You should enjoy it, Paul. As Eric said, it will be very exciting. The tour that follows is a nightmare with each new city a threat. You've rehearsed the new ballet with Eric, and all but the spectacular bit which is to be performed on a high platform. And you never know when Catherine will decide that the time is right for her revenge. She knows you're afraid, Paul. That's all part of it, keeping you in suspense this way. From Philadelphia, the company goes to Cincinnati, then St. Louis, Chicago, and on west to Denver. You expect the crisis there, but it doesn't happen. Finally, in the last night in Denver, when there's only San Francisco left ahead, you decide you can't stand it any longer, that you must face Catherine and have it out. As you approach your dressing room, you hear her talking to someone. And step back out of sight as the door opens. Come along, Eric. We'll talk while you're packing. Are we going on ahead of the rest of the company, Miss Valadon? Yes. I have to make extra arrangements. The uh, thing we discussed, Eric... It's coming off in San Francisco. Well, I've been wondering if you changed your mind. Not in the slightest. You start after them, Paul, and then stop, confused, wondering. Through the open door of Catherine's dressing room, you catch sight of a notebook on her dressing table. The famous black book that contains every move she makes, every decision, every appointment. You hurry over to it, thumb through the pages before she comes back. It's all there, Paul. The hotel on Knob Hill where Catherine will be staying. Her room number, the business meetings, a list of appointments. The last one with Eric to end promptly at 11 tomorrow night. Then at the top of the next page, the thing you're looking for. Final rehearsal, Cooper's specialty, Monday, 9 a.m. There's no question now, Paul. She's made up her mind. You're going to have an accident, Monday. 
Do you know how it feels to be through as a dancer? You're going to know, Paul. I'm going to show you if it takes the rest of my life. There's still an alternative, of course. You can let Catherine end your career or meet her on her own ground. By the time she's left on the train, you still haven't decided. It's the only thing on your mind as you stand in line at the railroad terminal, waiting to pick up your reservation. There's a worried little man ahead of you. Listen, I've simply got to get space on that San Francisco train. I can give you an upper on the next one. But it won't do. It won't do at all. You see, I'm meeting the steamer there. The Silver Star sailing for Shanghai. The next train will miss it. I'm awfully sorry, sir. Perhaps if you wait around, there'll be a cancellation. Oh, I see. Thank you. It comes to you at that moment, Paul. This is perfect. This train you'd planned to take ahead of the rest of the company. The frantic little man desperate for a ticket on his way out of the country. You pick up your reservation. Walk over to the stranger pacing anxiously in the corner of the station lobby. Excuse me. You wanted to go to San Francisco? Tonight? Yes, I've simply got to get on that train. So I heard. I, uh... I have a ticket here I want somebody to use. Oh? I'm a, I'm a traveling man, you see, and, uh, well, uh, I, I, I want my boss to think that I'm on that train. Oh, but isn't that... Nothing to it. All you have to do is travel in my name. Uh, Paul Cooper. What about it? Uh, Cooper, huh? Mister, for a place on that train, I travel as Mickey Mouse. Oh, fine. Then it's a deal. Mr. Cooper. Time is your next flight for San Francisco. Oh, we have space available on our five o'clock flight tomorrow. Not till then. I could do almost as well by leaving by train tonight. Not quite, sir. Our plane arrives in San Francisco tomorrow night at 11. The train leaving tonight doesn't reach San Francisco until uh, a half hour after midnight, 12.30. So you save at least an hour and a half. Well, I, I guess I can use an hour and a half extra sleep as well as anybody. Uh, send the ticket over to the Denver Hotel, please. I'll leave the money at the desk. The name is, um, uh, Jackson. An hour and a half, Paul. That's how much time you'll have. But it's enough. For you're on a schedule now, too. As exact a schedule as the one in Catherine's little black book. You stay overnight at the Denver Hotel under the name of Jackson, then pick up your plane ticket. The next afternoon at five, you're taking off for San Francisco. It's a swift flight, uneventful. And half an hour after landing at Mills Field, you're stepping out of the elevator on the top floor of Catherine's Hotel. You wait until the elevator starts down and then hurry to the stairs. Catherine's room is actually two floors below. You glance at your watch as you knock softly on a door. 11.35. And the black book told you her appointment with Eric was to end promptly at 11. You can depend on that, Paul. Just a minute. Paul! What are you doing here at this time of night? I thought you were on the train. I am on the train, Catherine. What's the matter with you? Have you been drinking? No, Catherine. What's this all about? Why have you come here? To see you. What about? 
Your unfinished business, Catherine. I don't want to discuss that now. Please, go, Paul. No more discussions, eh, Catherine? The appointment's for the day over. Complete. There'll be no interruptions. What are you... Paul! Come here, Catherine. Oh, no, not the telephone. Let go of me. Paul! I'll let go, Catherine, just as I did once before. But first... Stop it, Paul! Please! Put down that candlestick! As she falls to the floor, you put the heavy brass candlestick back on the table, cross quickly to the French doors leading onto the balcony and open them wide. A moment later, you stand near the railing, high over the glittering city, Catherine's body in your arms. The little black book will tell them she was all alone. Won't it, Paul? No more appointments. The body hurtling to the street will establish the moment of her death beyond any doubt. And you can slip quietly down to the station, just in time to make an appearance when the train arrives. You lift her high up on the railing, and then... Cooper, what are you... Eric, let go of her. Put her down. Get away from me. Leave me alone. Okay, Cooper. Okay. the devil was he trying to... Good Lord. She's dead. How did he ever expect to get away with it? Operator, get me the police. The last you remember, Paul, is the smashing blow of Eric's fist. There in Catherine Balladon's hotel room on the 12th floor. Everything's quiet now. No tension. No fear. Just soft, warm blackness. No, Paul. It doesn't seem to matter now that you killed Catherine Balladon because she forced you to choose between murder and a brilliant career. And it doesn't matter either that on this night, for the first time in all the years you've known her, she failed to follow the schedule in the little black book to the minute. You open your eyes, blinking into the glare of a white light at police headquarters. Yes, Eric Ballard is talking to a quiet-faced man in plain clothes. At first, I couldn't see how he expected to get away with it. The door unlocked and everything. I got up there and walked right in. I found him about to drop the body over the balcony rail to the street. Yeah, trying to make it look like a suicide, huh? What were you doing there, Ballard? I was keeping an appointment I had with her. You were a little late for that appointment, weren't you, Eric? Yeah. Our boy's back with us. That's what did it, you know, Eric. For the first time in Catherine's life, she didn't go by the book. What's he talking about? The notebook Miss Valadon kept her appointments in. She changed the appointment, didn't she, Eric? She changed it. You knew her better than that. That book was a religion with her. She lived by it. Don't tell me she lived by it. I saw that book back in Denver. Your appointment with her was to end at 11. That's where you slipped up, Cooper. No. No, I didn't slip up. I was too careful. I tell you, I saw it. That's not what I'm talking about. What do you mean? Take a look at your watch, Cooper. My watch? Yeah. You forgot to set it back. You see, Cooper, you're still on Mountain Standard Time. Let that whistle be your signal for the signal oil program, The Whistler. 
each Monday at 8. Brought to you by the Signal Oil Company, marketers of Signal gasoline and motor oil and fine quality automotive accessories. Featured in tonight's story were Jeanette Nolan and David Ellis. The Whistler was produced by George W. Allen with music by Wilbur Hatch, story by William Engvik, and was transmitted to our troops overseas by the Armed Forces Radio Service. This is Marvin Miller speaking for the Signal Oil Company. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. And Carl is taking a little coffee break, but we hope you enjoyed The Whistler from February 28, 1947, The Black Book, starring Bill Foreman as, as The Whistler, one of Carl's favorites. So let's take a short commercial break, and we will return right here on the Hollywood 360 Radio Network. And now back to Hollywood 360 with Carl Amari, brought to you by Reader's Digest. And thank you, Adam West. And that is a wrap. Thank you all for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Hollywood 360 from my co-host, Carl Amari, executive producer, Mike Costella, and Eric Getters. Thank you so much for pitch hitting this week from uh, Mike Costella, national movie critic, Sarah Adamson, Vince and Chris Lombardi, Carl's crabby, crabby brother, Vince Amari, Adam West, and me, Lisa Wolf. Thank you all very much for tuning in. We appreciate you. Stay safe, and we'll see you next time. Hollywood 360 with host Carl Amari is brought to you by Reader's Digest. To learn more about Hollywood 360 or to contact us, visit our website at hollywood360radio.com. Adam West speaking.